expect a good outcome. Expect great things to happen. And if you don't, you will spend the rest of your life living in fear. And that's not a life. Hello and welcome to Fear Itself with me, Cressida Bonus. In this podcast, I'll be asking people from all walks of life about fear to find out what it can teach us about ourselves and the world around us. We'll discover how fear limits them, how it motivates them and how they find the courage to face it head on. But before we begin, I want to tell you about this week's sponsor, Codex Beauty Labs. I don't know about you, but a lot of the time when I'm putting products on my skin, I don't really know how clean the ingredients actually are. Often beauty companies make these bold promises about their ingredients, only to be short on reality. But Codex Beauty Labs, on the other hand, represents what is good in the beauty industry today. What I love about Codex is their transparency and commitment to science. Their pioneering products are composed of clean and meticulously sourced ingredients and have clinically proven skincare benefits. Even more reassuring is that their wonderful founder is an award-winning PhD scientist herself. Simply put, Codex exceeds market expectations in sustainability and cleanliness. Each day, they work towards their mission to blend plant biology and biotech innovation and to create true, long-lasting plant-based biotech beauty. I'm really happy I found these wonderful products, and I highly recommend them. They smell absolutely delicious and make your skin feel silky soft. You can find Codex at codexbeauty.com. Today is a special episode of Fear Itself. I think it's fitting that I equip you with the tools to overcome your fears on this podcast. So I'm introducing you to two experts who deal with fear in two very different ways. This episode is full of actionable wisdom and insight that you can put into practice right away. I mean, a lot of those fears, a lot of those inner critics, a lot of them are sort of well-meaning because they're like an over overprotective parent trying to keep you from harm. Tracy Forsyth is a career coach and her work is focused on building workplace confidence, defeating imposter syndrome and crushing your inner critic. We'll hear from Tracy soon, but first let's unpack exactly what's going on in our minds when we feel fear and what we can do to gain control over it. John Hawker is a psychotherapist, clinical hypnotherapist, writer, author and speaker and what he has to say is truly eye-opening. The reality is is that fear is simply about worry and anxiety about what's going to happen in the future. If you're living in the now you will have no fear if you're living absolutely in the now unless the now involves you you staring at a crocodile that's three inches away from you but if you're still if you think about it actually worrying about what that crocodile is about to do so most fear comes from what might happen in the near future but what might happen in the future is influenced in terms of the emotions that are attached to it by what's happened in the past well, with you then, if you were to look at your own fears, because you deal with other people's fears on a day-to-day basis, can I assume you don't feel that much fear yourself? I don't want to sound too blasé about things, but generally speaking, I don't. Somebody actually asked me recently, is there, is there nothing that scares you? 
And I really don't have very much fear about anything. I think I probably did in as a youngster, which is quite natural. Human human beings come into the world hardwired to look out for threats, look out for anything that might eat us or mate with us. If you line a hundred people up and ninety-nine of them say you know, wonderful things about you, and and the the one hundredth says something awful about you, you will really zoom in on that because it's a threat to your well-being in some way or your your sense of being valued and your status and your importance. So it, it really it's just informed by patterns of the past. If you think of it this way, I'll try not to make this too long and boring an explanation, but since the moment you were born, there's a part of your brain, and it is your very primitive brain, that's been storing away information about things which at the time it perceived as threatening. So, I don't know, let's use an example. You were a six-week-old baby, and there you were taken to the doctors, and the doctor decided to inject something into you. Now, the adult world knows that what they're trying to do is keep baby healthy and happy you know, in the short term and longer term. But the baby's primitive mind doesn't understand that. All they know is that there's this smell, and then shortly after that, they were stabbed. And there's a huge difference between those things. Now, it may well be that if that baby was very stressed at the time, for the rest of that human being's life, that smell will trigger a phobic reaction, a trauma-driven reaction to that smell. Because even though it's storing it away, that information, what it is not storing is the context of it. So it's blind to the context of where that came from. You carry that on into other things. You know, Imagine you're walking up a hill and you're five years old and you're holding your mum's hand looking up at her and there's a curve in the road and it's slightly wet and around that corner comes a red car and as it does it skids and gets out of control and for a moment your mum looks hugely anxious and you look up at your mum and the, the grip on your hand tightens the car immediately gets under control this all happens in a very short space of time and it carries off down the hill 30 years later you're walking up a hill of roughly similar shape and a red van comes around the corner and suddenly you feel a real sense of panic and you have no idea why. And the reality is, is that in an instant, and this is the important part of it, faster than thought, your brain has recognised a life-threatening situation and kicks in your fight-or-flight response. I've helped lots of people over a fear of flying and you get very well-meaning airline pilots who come along and sit there and say well yeah you know it's just it's just fine I've been flying for thousands of miles and never had an instant and you're safer in the aeroplane than you are on the road but you turn to the person that's got the phobic response and they're still not getting on the plane and so in the world of psychotherapy what we do is use various different dissociative techniques that separate out that event if you like from the emotions that got hooked in it say if 
someone has anxiety about something in particular and it's linked to something they felt when they were a child but they don't remember specifically what that was when they were a child but they just know every time this certain thing comes up as an adult they feel anxious how is that person cured if they can't remember what it was that was when they were a child interestingly with the methods that we use these days they don't need to remember that event if you had a fear of of spiders and you can't remember why you've got a fear of spiders dissociating you and there's a very safe way of doing it which is called a double dissociation so what we would do is get somebody you know, get a, get somebody very relaxed get somebody so they are physically relaxed and that's an an important part of it physically being stressed and tense gets your body for ready for action your fight or flight response has kicked in so if you can get your body to relax in any given situation you're sending a a message back to your primitive brain not your thinking brain your primitive brain to say there's no saber-toothed tiger here where you can just relax so that's the first thing we do the next thing we do is get somebody to imagine perhaps being in a room and there in front of them is a tv and that there's a video film that's about to run of an event which they have a phobic response to and so the way we do it is to get them to float out of their body go behind the television and watch themselves sitting on the settee watching the events that happened but watching the events in a film that goes backwards and forwards you know really fast and then being in the movie and being pulled back through it really fast so they're being exposed to it but in a way which is dissociated or or doubly dissociated until the point when they're bored you know i've sat there many occasions in my rooms with this going backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards until you watch somebody's shoulders drop and they're bored with it they're actually bored with this movie and the most amazing things happen it is one of those one always hates to use the expression miracle cure in matters of the mind but it it has startling results and you can get people over lifetime of fears and and phobic responses in a couple of very quick sessions like that so take someone like me for example who has struggled with anxiety but i don't have any phobias that i know of <laughs> Um, and so what if someone like that comes to you and says oh I have anxiety but I don't know why it just sometimes comes and I and you know I don't know why so there isn't something like a spider or flying or that you can kind of do that with it's just it's just sort of comes randomly what do you do then I'm really glad you asked that question it's a very important question and trying to paint in broad brush strokes in in such complex things is is it's never easy but if this is a helpful way to look at it i think and it's something that's helped lots of clients over mine over over the decades anxiety is simply a set of symptoms caused by worrying and you were not born a worrier you learnt to worry and it may well simply be that you learnt to worry through a significant person in your life perhaps mums dads grandparents teachers 
influential figures in your formative years. And there's what, what I often refer to these days as the magic thousand and one days. That's between conception and being two years old. And that's the time in which, if you like, we are programmed with what we're going to be. And if you've got parents who, when you were young, they were, oh, you know, don't touch that, be careful, don't, you, you, you're going to fall off that, or you, no, no, be careful, and don't, what would that person think about you? You know, you are likely to grow up with that kind of thinking style. And if you've got influential people around you who make you, make you feel safe, and they say, no, it's gone, it's fine, just walk along that wall, it's only six foot high, you'll be just fine, just relax and enjoy the walk along the wall. You can see the contrasts there. Now, before we go any further, I'm not blaming parents, I promise you. But what my parents, the people that they were, they're simply a product of their parents and, and so on down the line. So go back to this concept that nobody was born a warrior. You learnt to worry and you can equally well unlearn your worrying and have a developed ways and there's lots and lots of different tools that we use to do this of just challenging your negative thoughts and seeing where it is that you what is it that you are worrying about that is then making you anxious and very often it's not the things that you think I've got a, a, a worry diary that I often share with with people it's just an exercise they go through on a daily basis for a little while to sit and think through the things that they're worried about and it's a really useful exercise to come up with it helps to identify if you like the the fault in the thinking that's causing that anxiety in the first place so just to recap anxiety is a set of symptoms which add up to a diagnosable illness caused by worrying and it might be something that worrying in the in the future in a minute or an hour or a day or a week or a month or a year so some people in their 20s talk to me and they tell me they're worried about being old well if you spend the next 40 years worrying about being old you're not going to enjoy the next 40 years and do you think then by writing and by talking, do you think they're the best techniques and tools to combat the worrying? You do get very, very well-meaning people who, who will sit down with somebody who's anxious about something and say, tell me all about it. And they will sit them to get them to relive every anxious thought that they've ever had. The much more successful approaches to psychotherapy and counselling these days are very much about what's you know a group of therapists referred to as solution focused therapies so if you get somebody and you sit them down and you ask them to share their anxiety thoughts that's that, that can be really helpful because what you're doing is changing this morass of chaotic illogical thoughts into coherent sentences that other people might understand. In the act of doing that itself, it can have a tendency to diffuse them, to take any way, any power that they may have had. At the same time, when you're writing things down and you're, you're going through them yourself, it slows the mind down 
and it has a tendency to take the power out of them. And you stop and you think about it, you think, well, actually, it's probably not really going to happen, is it? And that may well be a subconscious process as well. So that sitting down and writing and thinking about it may be helpful in the right hands. But if you've got one of those counsellors that just sits there and says, tell me how you feel, and you tell them it's awful, and then they say, well, tell me how you feel about that. Well, this is what I think is making me awful. And how do you feel about that? Okay, we'll see you next week. That's just you know, it's really unhelpful and can quite often be be damaging, we, we've recognised. It is about finding what works for you. What is it that helps you to have a good life? What is it that helps you to find the exceptions, those days that you're not anxious, and all the other factors that might influence it in some way? Sleep is a huge one. The path to sanity is through good quality sleep. So there's lots of technical stuff in the background there. And this is slightly going off on a bit of a tangent, but I have to ask you because dreams are something that really interests me. Sometimes I have really strange, really strange dreams. And I think, are dreams a sign that you're not processing something in your life or... Does it mean something? Is it your subconscious whirling up and saying you need to look at this in your life? Or what are dreams about other than processing that day? One of my pet subjects, sleep and dreams. Oh, great. Um, Again, I'm going to be painting with very broad brushstrokes because it gets technical and, and boring otherwise. But sleep has two purposes. Firstly, you need to sleep in order to rest the framework in which you as a person live, your body. So your cell structure repairs and restores in the night. Your heart rate slows, your body temperature drops. All sorts of fascinating things happen which are simply called rest. And you should be in that state for about 75 to 80% of the night. But the rest of the night is taken up with what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, which was first chanced upon by a, a French scientist called Jouvet back in sometime in the early 50s. And Jouvet noticed this phenomenon that when somebody was asleep and at certain times that they were asleep and they were restless and trying to move around, that their eyes were moving underneath their eyelids. And he coined the term rapid eye movement sleep. And interestingly, in rapid eye movement sleep, you are using lots of energy. I mean, it's a busy time in the night. And the vast majority of our dreaming is done in REM sleep. Now, I was very interested. You said you had, I think the word you used, that you had a very strange and interesting and weird dream. Every dream is strange and interesting and weird. <laughs> yes, that is true. <laughs> and, and I must tell you before we finish that you guys caused me to have the first nightmare that I've had in years. You'll understand why when I explain this. So during the day, we all get emotionally aroused. We might get emotionally aroused because we get scared or we get resentful or we get angry or... It might be a more positive thing. You might quite look of look of somebody, but we go through the day and we we suppress our need or our desire to express emotions about it. Somebody cuts you up at the traffic lights, and despite the fact that you're 
a very good mannered lady, there's a bit of you that would really, you've just got to bite your tongue. You don't shout out the window at them. And if you think about it, there will probably be many times during the day when something just gets you emotionally aroused, but you, you don't act upon it. In fact, if we lived in a world where everybody just acted on their emotions, there'd be dead bodies littering the streets. So we all learn to bite our tongues. And let's think of that. In fact, biting your tongue is a, a lovely metaphor, isn't it? But if you think of that as a, a positive thing, and think of it as filling up a some kind of container, a cistern, with undischarged, unexpressed emotional arousal. When you go to sleep at night, what happens is in your dreams, and much of your dreaming is in the second half of the night, and you go in and out of REM sleep and dream sleep in that second half of the night, but really what, what, what happens is your brain goes searching around for patterns. It goes searching around for experiences from your own life. And that might be something you were reading before you went to sleep, combined with something that happened to you 10, 15 years ago, and something a friend said to you last week. And it conjures together the most extraordinary, weird, strange, odd stories called dreams. But in those dreams, you experience emotions, and those emotions are what help you to resolve, to complete, if you like, that getting aroused and getting de-aroused. So in a perfect world, you go to sleep for about eight hours, you wake up the next morning, you've had all that physical rest, and you've got rid of yesterday's emotional mulch, and you're ready to go again for the next 24 hours of, of a circuit. Now, the important thing to realize in this is that the part of your brain which regulates all this does not understand the difference between real things going wrong and imaginary things going wrong. And the imaginary things going wrong are what we call worries, aren't they? So you can sit in a chair in a nice, warm, comfortable room being fed enough, absolutely safe, nothing wrong with your life. But if you sit there worrying enough and you misuse your imagination, you can work yourself up into a terrible frenzy. And that, that system, that container full of emotional arousal, because you can't take action to resolve things, that becomes a, it becomes a pressure cooker. And you need more and more and more REM sleep and as a consequence of that, you get less slow-wave sleep, so you wake up not so well-rested, and you wake up feeling anxious because the dreams that you're having are, are reflecting all those emotions. Now, let me tell you briefly a funny story, is that when you guys were kind enough to email me a few days ago and ask me about my childhood fears, and, and I had to think back. I mean, it was a long time ago, but I had to think back, and I sat there for about 10 or 15 minutes thinking through these really, really difficult experiences I had as a child. I was very lucky to have been brought up by wonderful parents in quite you know, difficult economic circumstances, but wonderful parents. And, and they were very relaxed about all sorts of things. But one did have 
a number of quite difficult experiences. And I sat there, as I say, 15 minutes thinking through all these things, writing them down for you, two or three different major childhood events. And guess what? That night I had the first nightmare that I've had for a long, long time. I can even remember it now. And I woke up thinking, what on earth is that about? Why am I stuck in this nightmare? And of course, I, I sat up and laughed and realised absolutely why. So that's a perfect example of how, despite the fact that I'm reasonably well fed and watered and a roof over my head, I can worry about all sorts of very, very primitive and potentially life-threatening things. Do you think just diving straight back in to the things that scare you, is that one way to, to conquer them? It used to be the mainstay of the way we helped people with those kind of fears and phobic fears, systematic desensitization. But in fact, it turns out that in lots of cases, it's not helpful and it may be potentially damaging. It can be helpful if you take it through to its natural conclusion and you, you do it in one fell swoop, you do it in one session. And you just get people more and more and more used to something. But if somebody falters along the way and they just back away from it and go, I'm sorry, I really can't do this today. And you say, well, okay, we'll try again tomorrow. The chances are that you have risked embedding that fear and and making it much worse than it, than it was originally. As with all these things, Cressida, there's no one size fits all. Sometimes I wonder if I'm quite a controlling person. I don't think on other people I am, but on myself. I'm not very good with uncertainty, and I think that can be a big driver of fear, uncertainty. How can we, do you think, change our perception of uncertainty to begin accepting it or even thriving on it? I think it's, you know, it's absolutely true. You spotted it that what we're all trying to do, to some degree, is put certainty into our lives and that's a very natural human trait is a very natural human thing to do if we know what's going to happen in the next 10 minutes we don't need to worry about the next 10 minutes if we know we are going to do something tomorrow we don't need to worry about that and if we're not careful what happens is we are ruled by our emotions and we're dragged around by our emotions and if we're dragged around by our emotions, well, it will be a sad life that we lead. <laughs> if I if I say to you, "Hey, let's let's go, let's go sailing tomorrow." Look, look, you know the weather looks great. And do you think sailing? What will I do? Supposing I'm seasick, what does the weather look like? Will it be awful? Will I be safe? Your mind will go off down that avenue. If you think sailing, oh gosh, yeah, the last time I was sailing was. Oh, in the hot sun and it was warm and it was a beautiful day and I had an absolutely marvellous time, let's go sailing. It doesn't change the boat that we're going to use. It doesn't, doesn't change anything about the skipper or which way the wind's blowing or the strength of it or anything else. It merely changes the thoughts in your head. If we've got a sense that we don't have any strength, that we're emotional, emotionally fragile, we will spend a great deal of our life trying to protect ourselves from what our primitive brain believes is a risky situation. You will never actually get to go sailing. And so 
we have to find tools which work for us in terms of the way we challenge our own negative thoughts. And that's not, it's not an attempt to get anybody to be blindly optimistic about life. Of course, we need to, to pay attention and, and think about the things that, that may go wrong. I thought about it the other day. I climbed on a ferry across to the Isle of Wight. And they put up this little video, which is like a safety demonstration. And really what they're saying is, look, we've, we've thought about everything that could go wrong on this ferry. And we'd like to rehearse with you what, what we're all going to do if it goes wrong. And here's the life jackets and there's the life raft and there's the emergency exits and so on. But after they finish that, the captain comes on with an announcement. It says, we expect to arrive at the Isle of Wight in, in, in half an hour's time. That's a very realistic expectation. If we sit in our, our seat on that ferry and we expect to arrive in the Isle of Wight safely and happily, that's going to give us you know, good expectations and good mental health. If we sit in our seat and we are absolutely terrified at the prospect, imagining all of these things that could go wrong and how disastrous that would be and what the consequences are, we will be in a terrible state when we get off of that ferry. We've been on the same ferry as everybody else. So let's think about life. Let's think about the things that could go wrong. We don't want to starve to death, so let's go out and get a job and earn some money in order to put some food on the table and keep a roof over our head. Good, that's fine. Let's take normal, happy precautions to keep us safe and look after our well-being and go back to the idea of those needs being met. But then, when we've done that, let's use our imagination to imagine really good outcomes. Expect a good outcome. Expect great things to happen and really look forward to them. And if you don't, you will spend the rest of your life living in fear. And that's not a life. And also, John, I'm sorry, this is really completely changing the subject, but I did really, I really wanted to ask you about this because you said in your email to me that you were standing at the bottom of the World Trade Center when it fell down. And I thought, oh, I must ask you about that because that must have been a terrifying time. Yes, here we are, coming up to the 20th anniversary of it. I know. Um, it's an interesting thing. Yes, okay, very briefly, I lived in New York at that time. I lived in Battery Park City, which was about two blocks south of the World Trade Center. And I was in the gym on the roof of my building and just saw lots of smoke coming out the first building, went down to get my camera and my phone. And I was standing out on our roof terrace and watched the second airplane come and hit. And I thought that's that's not an accident. It's a long, long tail, but I ended up close to the bottom of the World Trade Center, and then it started being you know, cleared away of people, if you like, and shortly after that, the, the first building fell down, and I, was, when I, was, I wasn't injured. I was just one of those people that you see a little bit covered in dust, and I was fine, and I've never had any kind of phobic response to it or trauma response or anything else, but about two, two or three years ago now, I went back to New York. I was I was invited back by somebody who is making a documentary about about it 
to do with the 20th anniversary and about a very strange and funny little facet of the story. And so I went back there and just walked back along the route that I took. And it was at that moment that I certainly got a great deal of flashbacks going on just for, just for a minute going back to those those times but it was a time when I got a bit dusty and I walked away from it and I was one of the very lucky ones and um, it became a bit surreal for a few weeks <laughs> and then I decided to come back to the UK after that. John thank you so much for coming on Fear Itself and I think it's going to be so helpful for people especially in this time when times are really uncertain at the moment and I think people are worried about the future understandably so thank you so so much now let's meet career coach Tracy Forsyth Tracy has recently launched a platform called Fast Track to Fearless, a concept that almost sounds too good to be true. I asked Tracy how she's able to push people over the seemingly insurmountable hump that is fear. The first thing I think really is to process what that fear is, because many people have fears, but they're sort of lurking in there and they're not clearly defined. So There's a feeling of unease or a feeling of something bothering you. And so in my coaching and mentoring work, a lot of the fears that I deal with are fears of failure, fear of being yourself, fear of using your voice, that kind of thing. And one of the things I think is really crucial is to pause and really process what is going on. So literally, if you take your hand and sort of pat it against your chest and close your eyes and think, what is actually going on in there? So, so many people that I work with, they're sort of classic self-critical overachievers. And instead of being kind and taking time to, to listen to themselves and, and listen to what's going on, they try to brush it away or suppress it or squish it down or even just sort of tell themselves off for being silly. And I think feelings and fears and Uh, things that are going on just don't go away unless you really process them. So my first step is really to to get people to pause and process what is going on. And imagine really that if you've got a feeling of unease, even if you kind of know what your fear is, it's just to imagine it's sort of like a ball of thread inside you that's all got tangled up and just spend time figuratively unraveling that ball of thread, like taking out the knots and just seeing that if you've got a fear at one end of the thread, just look at what is at the root of that or the the other end of that. Because I think self-awareness and understanding what you're really worried about is the first step to being able to know what to do about it. And the other thing that I think is really super helpful is to understand that When we're talking about things like imposter syndrome or inner critics or career fears rather than actual, you know, phobias about actual, I don't know, cockroaches or whatever, often they are linked to values that you hold very dear. So, for example, if somebody's a perfectionist and they fear that they're never going to be good enough or the job that they're doing is not going to be, it's not going to please everybody or 
that kind of thing. Often, when you look at what's at the other end of that, it's often a value of excellence, that people want to be excellent. They want to deliver a really, really good job. And the fear is that it's not going to be good enough. So if you understand that the value that is linked to that fear is excellence, then you can sort of tackle, well, what does excellence really look like? What does success look like for me? How will I know that I have been excellent? Because let's face it, you can't actually satisfy a perfectionist because it's never perfect enough. So, you know, another example of that, I think, is the fear of looking foolish. You know, a lot of people are, are frightened to speak up in meetings or, or frightened to put themselves out there in case they look like an idiot. And if you think about, okay, so that's the fear But what's almost like, what would assuage that fear? What would make that better? And I think what that is sometimes linked to is the value of respect and recognition. So somebody who might think, oh, I don't want to make a klutz of myself. I'm really frightened about speaking up in case everybody just looks at me and there's tumbleweed and they just think that's an idiotic question. Well, often that's linked to a value of, you know, wanting to be respected, wanting to be recognized, wanting to be taken seriously. So then you think about, okay, so actually that's my va- that is my value. I need to be, I want to be, my oxygen is, or part of my oxygen is being respected and valued. So what do I do about that? Are there other ways that I can ensure that happens? I think this idea of not being able to speak up, I've definitely felt that in group situations. And it's really frustrating because if you really feel like you have something to say or something to add to the conversation and you just can't find your voice in that situation. It's really frustrating. You just think, oh, is the fear of, of being judged or, or saying something stupid is holding, holding me back. And I was wondering, do you think the sort of fearless person will be prone to more success? Or is some fear healthy, do you think? Oh, well, definitely. I mean, some fear is healthy because if you think about it, we are living organic animals. And if you think about the animal kingdom, you think about those classic shots where you've got those deer in the deer or whatever they are in the jungle and um, or the, in the in the plains and they hear a snap of a twig and they immediately <laughs> perk up. They know there's a predator nearby and they run for it. So a lot of fear is about is sensible. It's about self-preservation. And I think it's it's only when the fear of like when you want to speak up and you're you're frightened of looking like a klutz or looking like an idiot, it's only when it holds you back that it becomes a problem. And I mean, a lot of those fears, a lot of those inner critics, a lot of them are sort of well-meaning because they're like an over overprotective parent trying to keep you from harm, trying to keep you all safe and secure so that so that you don't graze your knee or you don't get upset or they're just trying to protect you. But the other thing I think you've got to think about is, well, what does it cost me? What does it cost me to listen to this fear? What does it stop me from? And is it worth is it worth pushing through? And the other thing I think about your question about are fearless people more successful? I definitely think it helps because a lot of our world leaders are seem completely fearless and and they don't necessarily have to be the best people for the job, do they? If you look at people in power, they are often not the best people for the job. They often don't have admirable qualities. They are often very self-serving. So it definitely can can help people in terms of success. But I, I think it's important to be to be fearlessly you, 
to do it in in your way and to to own who you are and what you know and be fine about the bits that you don't. Most people have self-doubt. You know, one of the things that I used to ask in my corporate role when I was a corporate boss, I was always really intrigued by the people right at the top. And I always used to find a way, I was on a lot of leadership committees and all that kind of thing. And if I had a private moment with a with a big boss, I would always ask them, I'd say, you, feel, you seem really fearless, you seem really confident, but do you ever experience self-doubt? And every single one that I, I asked said, said yes. And some of them said every day. So I think everybody feels fear. Everybody is worried in some way or the other. But I think being able to, well, you know, that classic expression, feel the fear and do it anyway, is a very, very powerful skill to learn. I've worked all over the world. I worked in television for 30 years as a sort of hustling freelancer from job to job. And then as, you know, in a, in a corporate division and, and felt that self-doubt and fear many, many times. And I think what's come out of it is kind of pushing through has definitely made fear easier to tackle. And actually, just going going to your point about speaking up, I used to take part in these leadership conferences where you'd have guest speakers and there'd probably be about 200 of us in a room, global leaders. And um, I always used to think, oh, I want to ask a question but I'm really worried. That's a classic thing. I'm really worried about looking stupid because there were lots of areas I knew about and lots of areas that I didn't do, didn't. But I wouldn't ask the question. And then I would kick myself because somebody else would ask that question. So it wasn't such a stupid question, you know, and then even worse, somebody on the panel might say, oh my gosh, that was such a good question. So at the time, you know, I was ambitious and I wanted to be noticed and there were 200 execs in the room and I wanted to stand out. And so I decided that at the next global leadership conference, I was going to ask a question for every single panel and I was going to be the first up with my hand. So I remember, you know, the first few times I'd be there, you literally with my heart pumping, that feeling where your head is full of pounding. It's almost like your heart is in your head pounding and um, really butterflies in my tummy and put my hand up. It was almost sort of had to hold my arm up very strong, strongly to stop it from trembling. And then I'd just get it out there. And sure enough, you know, they'd say, oh, thank you for the question. The earth did not move. The question was asked. I felt a lot better. And and what, what was more, people started to come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I'm glad you asked that question. I wanted to know that. And more people started to sort of say to me, oh, my God, you're so brave, Tracy, you're so brave. And I, and so I would tell them, you know what, I just make myself do it. And now that I mentor a lot of women in particular, I really, really urge them to use their voice to speak up, to say something, even if it's and to get into the habit of it, because the more you do it, it becomes so much easier. And also, Krista, I've had these issues where in the corporate world, I've been around a boardroom and um, I've said something and there was like tumbleweed and then somebody else said it, i.e. a man. And then everybody sort of takes note and says, oh, what a good idea. And, you know, I used to be a bit fuming when that happened. But since then, what I've realized is, well, you know what, I'm just going to be bolder and brasher and say it louder and clearer and ask a question at the end of it to make sure it's landed. So for me, it's about being proactive, taking action, and just getting into the habit of confronting those fears, 
constructively. Because sometimes I feel like we build these pictures up in our head or these stories in our minds. And actually, when we just do it, when we just, for example, speak up, it's never as bad as what it looks like in our minds. So I really feel that when you say that habit. The other thing, Cresta, is that you cannot go wrong if you speak from the heart. You cannot go wrong. And so many people are trying to be other people. Imposter syndrome. It's like, oh, you know, that feeling comes from like, oh, well, I'm not that person in my mind's eye. Well, you don't have to be. Be fearlessly you and speak from the heart and you will never go wrong. If you speak from your heart, you're speaking your truth. And whether people disagree with you or not, they may disagree with you, but it's your truth and that's the way you see it. And that's your contribution. So I think the world would be a better place if if more people got into the habit of doing it and speaking, saying what they really mean. What would you say your fears are now? Because I know you have children and I was wondering if having children, does that affect the way you view and respond to your fears in a different way than when you didn't have children? Yes, definitely. You know, I, I think when I was growing up and even when I was a young young woman, sort of like a teenager, my biggest fear was the loss of my, my parents. I, I just couldn't think of anything thing worse. I used to have a little picture of them by my bedside alongside with my brother, a little picture of three of them, and it had like a, a little frame and a glass covering. I used to kiss it multiple times before I went to bed. I'd have to give them all an equal number of kisses and <laughs> go round and round and round, kissing, kissing that little picture before I went to bed, hoping that they'd never, never die. But now I've got children, what I fear is dying whilst they still need me. And frankly, you know, I'm 51 now and I still need my mum and I'm lucky to have my mum and dad around still. But what I don't want to do is leave my children before they are fully grown adults and independent and confident and, and fearless as well. So that I suppose if I have fears now, that would be my greatest fear. My sister was saying that the other day. She was saying that's her greatest fear as well is, is leaving her children and how do you teach little children to be fearless, to find their fearlessness? I can really only say that I've got my own children who are teenagers now. But I, I think it's a similar thing, really. It's about really understanding what is going on, what their fear is, whether it's rational or not, what the context is, and what is available for them to do about it. I mean, I do believe one of the greatest gifts I can give my children is to be free, free, independent thinkers and to be able to stand on their own two feet. With our children, I've very much always encouraged them to make choices, even from an early age. And I mean, they're sort of, my, my daughter is 15, going on 16, and my son is 14, so they're bigger now. But it's just to have, just to realize that there is choice out there. But also the other thing is that is about integrity. You know, I always, I heard this saying ages ago that integrity is doing the right thing, even though nobody is watching. So that that's one of the things that I try and imbue with them. But also not to have any self-limiting behaviors. You know, like if my daughter says, like she said to me in the car yesterday, mommy, I'm thinking about having a nose ring. 
I think, okay, well, fine, go ahead. The only thing I don't want you to do is getting into minicabs late at night, you know? So I think within reason, it's sort of, well, with within reason, it's like, you know, give them the freedom, give them the imp- independence to, to make their own mistakes, to do what they want, to have that independence and find things out for themselves. And I don't know, Cresta, whether it's right or wrong, we'll see, but that's what I'm doing. Not shielding your children. I think is a good idea. It's about really showing them that actually, like strange things happen in life. And it's not that we don't live in a fairy tale, or maybe we do. We we don't live in this world where everything is always fair. And at the end of the day, you've got to understand yourself. You've got to understand your drivers, understand those values and go for it. I think so many of us are looking for that purpose and trying to find it and what is it and am I on the right path and am I doing the right thing and all of these questions. So that's really interesting. And speaking about your purpose, I'd love to know more about your yoga in the boardroom, which I have been following and it just looks amazing. And I have been trying to do a few of the moves in my <laughs> on my chair, my computer, but I'd love you to tell us a bit more about that. Yeah. So yoga in the boardroom came about because I was a divisional director at the BBC. So I had a big sort of corporate leadership role and yoga was just something completely separate that I did at the weekends. And the two were never, ever connected So yoga was something that I did on a mat. And when it came to yoga, I was very achievement focused. And I started taking private lessons in yoga and I had a great teacher. And so we would do these kind of routines and then she'd teach me more and more difficult arm balances and headstands and all that kind of thing. And I just got hooked on what I thought was being good at yoga, which At the time, I kind of thought, okay, I want to be really good at yoga. What I wanted to be able to do was to do a freestanding handstand. You've seen some of these these yogis do on Instagram. So to stand, to be in the middle of the room, to put my hands on the floor, to be able to pike up with straight legs into a handstand and then come down again. I wanted to do it, post it on Instagram. You know, that for me, that was the pinnacle. So I decided whilst I was doing my my role at BBC to do a yoga teacher training course because that was the closest thing that I could see to really becoming good at yoga. It was 200 hours and it was over a year because I was still doing my full-time job, two kids, husband, dog, the whole shebang. So I started doing this course and obviously in the 200-hour yoga teacher training, you don't just do the physical postures. You do the philosophy, you do the anatomy, you do Sanskrit, you do breathing, etc., etc. And What I realized was over the course of that year, I was bringing lots of techniques that I would traditionally do in the mat into my corporate leadership role. So in those days, I had to go and present to the board, business cases to the board. And, you know, I come from a creative background in TV, not a commercial background. And even though I was running this department, I was just always really frightened of these meetings because I felt out of my depth when I was talking about numbers, talking about this, that and the other, quite intimidating, the boardrooms. And so I just remember, you have to wait outside until it's your turn to go in. I just remember feeling really nervous and then starting to use something called Ujjayi breath. So it's called victorious breath, which is a breath that, well, it's proven to lower your sympathetic nervous system, kick in the parasympathetic nervous system. It's proven to lower blood pressure and bring more oxygen into your system, et cetera, et cetera. So I just spend like, I'd literally do it in all suited and booted outside of the boardroom doing this breath. 
And also I found that what I do like, so one of the poses in one of the asanas and yoga is mountain pose, which is just a simple standing posture. But essentially, if you're doing it, you are at your fullest height and also you are broad and open chested. And I just started standing like that. If I was doing presentations, I used to have to present a lot. Even if I was sitting, then I would sit up to my fullest height and I would open my chest to have my chest broad because not only did it make me feel more confident, but I believe it created a more impactful physical presence. And so I just found that if I was meeting people and, you know, if I was suddenly feeling a bit out of my depth, I would use various yoga techniques, posture, breathing, that kind of thing in my everyday life. And at the time I was beginning to mentor and coach other people and time and time again, self-belief and lack of confidence and all that kind of thing comes up. So I thought, God, there's so many ways that, that yoga is actually helping me in my job that I think it can help other people. And then obviously there is the more physical stuff. So nowadays we're in the digital era we are hunched over a laptop or a smartphone for literally 12 hours a day. And it just means that our bodies are sort of curling in and over and the exact opposite of having that nice, open, confident posture. So I started adapting postures that I was doing on the mat to my desk and chair. So that kind of stuff. And then finally, actually, what I learned about yoga, you know, is yoga there's this guy called Patanjali who who effectively wrote the yoga Bible. It's the yoga sutras. And right off the bat, he says yoga is the cessation of the mind stuff. So it just means like yoga is really about stopping all the all the crazy things that are going on in our head and finding that peace. And that was a real game changer for me because it wasn't about being able to do a handstand in the middle of the room and show off on Instagram. Yoga was the cessation of the mind stuff. It's about the union of body, spirit and mind. And also when you come to the, there's like the eight steps of yoga, the eight limbs of yoga, the very first one are these things called the yamas, which is how to, how to live, how to treat others. And the very first one is ahimsa, which means to be kind, to be kind. And in a corporate world, not even in a corporate world, the one thing that I find self-critical overachievers to be is not kind to themselves. And so that made a massive impact on me about being kind, not only to myself, I'd like to think I was already kind to other people, but also to be kind to myself. And the other one there, actually, one of the other ones of those, those yamas is satya, which means speaking your truth. So I found underneath it all, the philosophy of yoga is really how to live a good life. It's nothing really to do with the postures. The postures are there as a discipline and helping you breathe, et cetera, et cetera. But there were so many things in, in yoga that was useful to living an authentic and fearless life, fearlessly you. So as a result, I thought, right, well, I'm going to hack all the best bits of yoga, or not all the best bits because there's so much of it, but bits that I think are particularly apt to work your mental and physical well-being at work, but also your self-belief and confidence at work. And I put it into all these techniques which are under yoga in the boardroom. So now I, I teach a lot of people in organizations or companies 
teach them the method and then I've got all kinds of like a little YouTube channel showing the moves, etc. But yoga in the boardroom is really about how to adapt principles and techniques from yoga to empower you at work to live and lead authentically, but also to look after your mental and physical well-being. I actually do a free session on Fridays at five o'clock for everybody if they've been at their desk and they've just had their mind full of thoughts. I I decided to do it on Fridays at five o'clock because I thought that is the time that people need to stretch those necks out, to stretch the shoulders, to really elongate the spine and just chill out before sliding into the weekend. So if you or anybody wants to join me, just head to Yoga in the Boardroom. It's completely free. It's desk and chair stretches, breathing exercises. It's just 30 minutes. And somebody said to me, oh, it's like having a power nap and a massage all in one. Mm, Fantastic. See you there. (laughs) (laughs) and we're coming to an end but you have wanted to quickly talk about your podcast that is called fast track to fearless and you've spoken to a number of high profile and high achieving people what have you learned from them it goes back to i think the original point that i i think i've made is that all the people i've spoken to who would be seen as super high achievers super talented super fearless etc etc have all had and dealt with imposter syndrome and self-doubt and fears. And so the really fast track to fearless is almost like a guide to how to approach your career fearlessly, what successful people have been through, how they've handled it, what tips they have, what advice they have to help empower, empower you to do the same and to make you realize that you are completely normal and they all talk about being authentically themselves and that's when they're at their happiest and going for it. Uh, so it's very, very interesting because some of the things, some of the most successful people still have the greatest uh, self-doubt. So I, th- I think it's quite inspirational to to know that you don't have to let your self-doubt, you don't have to let your fears stop you in your tracks, that it's worth tackling them, understanding them and pushing through to deliver what you want to deliver for you. So it's um, hopefully going to be a wonderful podcast about how to be fearlessly you. Thank you, Tracy, so much for coming on Fear Itself. This has been really, really fascinating. And I would like to end on your quote, the true power is learning to be your true self, which I think is a perfect note to end on. Thank you, Cresta. It's been my pleasure to talk to you. Thanks to John Hawker and Tracy Forsyth for joining me on the podcast. Next week, I'll be speaking to Ed Jackson, former professional rugby union player and author of the new book, Lucky. Keep up to date by liking, reviewing and subscribing to Fear Itself on your favourite podcast app. I always love to hear from my listeners. Let me know what you think about the show, if you've been inspired by any of the conversations or simply just get in touch to tell me a bit about you. You can find me on Instagram. You've been listening to Fear Itself, presented by me, Cresta Bonus. This podcast was produced by One Fine Play. Executive producer is James Bishop. Editorial producer and editor is Ollie Guillou. Additional creative support from Selena Christophidis, Louise Berry, Jessica Williams, Emily Weller and Connor Foley. With music by Malt Mutton. Thanks for listening. <laughs>